This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 24th of September 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, the Australian journalist Latika Burke goes through the front pages with me. We'll be at the Lisbon Art and Craft Biennale and... Space Force. As listeners who have inexplicably chosen to endure the modern age sober may recall, is the relatively recently inaugurated newest branch of the US military and was an initiative of this guy. Andrew Muller gives us his take on the last seven days. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. But first, here are the headlines. Russia launched referendums yesterday in four occupied regions of Ukraine, aimed at annexing them. Ukrainian officials said people are banned from leaving some occupied areas until the four-day votes are over. Armed groups are going into homes and employees have been threatened with the sack if they don't participate. Kyiv and Western nations dismissed the votes as a sham and pledged not to recognise their results. China has accused the United States of sending very wrong, dangerous signals on Taiwan after the US Secretary of State told his Chinese counterpart on Friday that the maintenance of peace and stability over Taiwan was vitally important. Taiwan was the focus of the 90-minute direct and honest talks between Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi on the margins of the UN General Assembly in New York. Italy's leaders held their final rallies on Friday ahead of a parliamentary election on Sunday that's expected to be won by a rightist alliance, putting Rome on a possible collision course with Brussels. Opinion polls have all predicted that Giorgia Maloney's Nationalist Brothers of Italy group will emerge as the leading party and share power with its allies, the League, headed by Matteo Salvini and Silvia Berlusconi's Forza Italia. And champion tennis player Roger Federer's trophy-laden career ended with defeat on Friday, but for once the result hardly mattered as the Swiss maestro headed into retirement with tears in his eyes and cheers ringing in his ears. It still feels like a celebration for me and that's exactly what I hoped for, said Federer, who scaled unprecedented heights and rewrote the record books. It's been a perfect journey and I would do it all over again. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by Latika Burke. She is a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Good morning to you, Latika. Good morning, Georgina. Busy week ahead for you. What have you got on? Well, packing my bags, uh, in interrupting my packing of bags to, to come on your program this morning um, because uh, a couple of hours after this program, I'll be shooting off to Liverpool, one of my favourite cities in the UK. Although um, I strangely only ever seem to go there for political coverage because it's the Labour Party annual conference this year. So I'll be down on the Mersey, um, but unfortunately surrounded by politicians. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, such an interesting time for Labour, though, because, of course, they are ahead uh, in the polls. They're doing better than they have done for a long time, but only because I think the bar is so incredibly low right now. And it sunk a few feet lower uh, yesterday with Kwasi Kwarteng's mini budget and the subsequent uh, effect that's had on the markets and on the pound. 
Yes, and I think there's a, a brilliant quote here that sums it all up as a result of uh, this massive, massive rerouting of the British economy that the, the new government has announced yesterday. And this comes from Larry Summers. Uh, he says, uh, the UK is behaving a bit like an emerging market, turning itself into a submerging market. <laughs> and this, of course, was after the pound fell to historic lows of a dollar and eight against the US. Um, and there's expectations that it could fall even further. Now, the markets got very spooked by what the government announced, of course, of £45 billion pounds worth of tax cuts, most of that going to those on upper incomes, um, funded, of course, by more borrowing. And the cost of borrowing uh, for the UK government has risen from something like 0.3% to above 2.5% in the last two years. So the cost of borrowing for the UK is much more expensive than it was. So it's not like this comes cost-free. It's not like this is a, a Thatcher-esque re-engineering of the economy um, and, and talking about delivering tax cuts to a, a country when the budget's in surplus. This is funded by more and more debt. And there's this extraordinary boast from the government yesterday that they will have the second lowest uh, debt to GDP ratio in the G7. Can I just remind you, the UK's debt to GDP is currently 99%. I mean, we are talking about stratospheric levels of debt here. So comparing it favourably to other countries with slightly higher stratospheric levels of debt, I don't think is uh, an economic mantra we would ever have heard from someone like Margaret Thatcher, let alone the Conservative Party up until yesterday. I mean, it does seem extraordinary. And as you pointed out, uh, it's it's a budget that largely benefits the rich. There's quite an interesting comment uh, There's uh, underneath the uh, FT piece on this. It's the most um, recommended comment on the news story about it. Uh, and it it's from someone who says, I'm in the city and this means another 5k a year in my bank account, but I'm not happy. Public services are crumbling due to years on, of underinvestment and the UK deficit is out of control. This is the killer point. There is no point being privately wealthy, but publicly impoverished. And that seems to echo the mood of the nation. People are very angry. Do you think that there will be some kind of U-turn, that you can't tear up the economic orthodoxy uh, in this way and that they might have to row back, which, of course, would be incredibly damaging? No, I don't, Georgina. And I think this is why you have in Liz Truss a complete... Uh, political disruptor. Others might call her a loose cannon slash wrecking ball. This is someone who has come into politics uh, holding various positions that are completely an anathema to where she sits today within the Conservative Party, but full of ambition. And her Chancellor is equally dogmatic. So these two figures, uh, Quasi and Liz, are very, very close, very uh, personally close friends. And they are resolute on this idea that the deep state, in inverted commas, um, in inverted commas, sorry, is the is the problem. They are determined to crash through this, and they are determined to show us what a real Brexit looks like. That is the Singapore upon Thames uh, model, and you will notice that's why. The right wing of the party loves this. The right wing think tanks love this. Almost nobody else does. So I don't think they will U-turn no matter how difficult or unpopular this gets. What I do think happens here is, for the first time, a genuine political battle about where 
uh, Britain's future lies and the characteristics of its society. Last election, we didn't really have an election. It was a choice between Jeremy Corbyn, who was completely uh, not credible, and this will of Boris Johnson to get rid of political infighting. Who could say no to that? You know, we all did want Brexit done because that meant an end to the infighting. This time... We have a real contest and we will see a Labor Party re-energised. We will see a very credible figure in Keir Starmer going to the electorate and asking the public for permission to govern. I'm not sure you could say that the public will be as predisposed towards the Conservatives as they were towards Boris Johnson, someone that the public, for better or worse, did have a deep emotional connection with. Mm -hmm. So I think... We're in for some really, really interesting times politically if you're an observer of politics. Of course, the next two years for the economy are a white-knuckle ride, I think. Yeah, absolutely. If the gamble pays off, they're geniuses. If it doesn't we are all paying in a serious way. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget that Liz Truss does not have a mandate from either the country or indeed her own party. You know, this is such a good point because Liz Truss reversed the national insurance hike, saying Rishi Sunak broke a manifesto promise. We said we wouldn't do this. Therefore, Rishi Sunak shouldn't be the prime minister. I should be. What does she proceed to do once she becomes the prime minister? Implement a raft of sweeping economic changes that she has not even had a public debate about with the broader community beyond the tiny number of Tory, uh, Tory members who, who voted her in. Uh, she has not had permission from the country to follow this sort of uh, deregulation de- of the economy. And it's also at a time where polling suggests people are actually a bit happier to pay, as your your commenter on the FT pointed out, pay a little bit more in return for better services. The dial has completely turned around on this sort of economics. And this is actually the other big shift that's taken place that I think has gone unobserved. We've had for some time a Tory party that's tacked populist left. It has seen its future in the so-called red wall, that is uh, suburban or kind of uh, rural um, voters who would normally have voted Labor. Now we see the Conservative Party turning its back on those voters, back towards the southeast voters who are wealthier, back towards London voters who are in the city, uh, and back towards this idea that if we just have a very flat tax system, everything will work out because the wealth will be generated and find its way to other people. This comes against a backdrop of stark inequality around the world. This model has not worked. Uh, So the real test for this government in two years is not going to be whether you or I got a tax cut. The test is going to be ordinary voters looking around and saying, did my wages go up? Because the bankers' wages went up. They just got a nice big fat bonus. Did mine? Yeah. Those politics, I think, will be absolutely diabolical. Well, people are very, very angry and there is a huge march planned for the 1st of October and it'll be very interesting to see how much support that gets and whether, in fact, it is able to change anything. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. And, of course, what's suffering are our public services. So the NHS, for instance, absolutely crumbling as we speak, but also arts uh, and and culture here, a lot of underfunding there. 
The same can't be said, of course, for Portugal, where uh, it's no secret that the country's home to some excellent craftsmanship. While many brands come to the country in search of that talent, the hardworking artisans seldom get the spotlight they deserve and the need for the continuation and survival of their skills. Well, hopefully that's about to change as the first edition of the Arts and Craft Biennale kicked off this week in the municipality of Oerch. Up until Sunday, people can head to the town's market to get to know and buy the work of 30 different craftsmen and women from around the country, spanning basketry to metalwork, woodwork to leather. While Monocle's Lisbon correspondent, Gaia Lutz, headed to the trade show to find out more. So my name is Astri Susano, and together with Fatima Durki, we co-founded a non-profit association called Passo Futuro. And so Passo Futuro is interested in the passage of the knowledge. So our goal is to guarantee that uh, these know-hows are passed into the next generation. And so we organize different initiatives. We are very much based on research. And so we can do like a credit for an exhibition. We can organize summer schools where we put together students with craftspeople. We also organize collaborative residencies where we put designers with craftspeople to create new products, to go into new markets. And so, of course, when Speed invited us to do the curatorship of the biennial, specifically the program of the conference, the market where we are now, and also the exhibition of the shorts, for us it made total sense, because it is a way to promote the crafts and also to activate and also to bring awareness and to get the new generation and get to know all of this to the next generations. As we stand here, obviously, uh, for anyone that's passing by, it makes it seem that it's like an easy job. Here are some stands, here are some crafts, but obviously there's a lot of research that goes into choosing who you're going to bring here, because there's so many craftsmen around the country. Can you tell me a little bit about how that process was? Well, actually, in this specific event, as the biennial, it had to be very democratic, so it could not be by direct invitation. So we decided that the best would be to have open call, let's say, the craftspeople could apply to be here. And then based on their portfolio and their proposals, we would choose them. And the categories that we ended up having were a result of the people who applied to the open call. Because of course, I mean, it's a limited space. We only have space in the end for 30 artisans, which is nothing for the scale of Portugal. And we ended up coming up, we ended up having only six categories, which are textiles. We have ceramics and, ceramics and glass. We have wood, basketry, metal, leather and fur, you can see the variety of things that are happening in Portugal, not only traditional but also contemporary, because we also wanted to have some sort of dialogue between, within the same category, let's say like in textiles, carpets, like wool carpets, you can have the contemporary version alongside with the, with the traditional version. So we also were interested in having that dialogue every time it's possible. Can you tell me a little bit as we walk, but whoever you want to, to speak about? Um. We can start with as we are close to the basketry. Basketry is, is very, a very dear subject for Passof Turo because we recently opened uh, an exhibition on basketry, which was after three years of research on basketry in Portugal. And so in here we have Signora Bilio, who's a master basket weaver. Usually the basket weavers, they very much work in one or two different raw materials, but he works with everything. Not only he works with, I mean, he works with the splint wood, he works with willow, he works with cane, he works with everything, and he also harvests his own material, which is very impressive. 
and it has a big variety of products. I think it's very, very interesting in the fair. Even though we have only six categories in the whole market, I think it's interesting that just for basketry we have one, two, three, four, five, six different raw materials and different techniques. So it, in that sense, basketry is very well represented. Just with plants, you can make a huge variety of products. As you're saying, like from carpets to purses to vases to lamps to furniture to purses. Can you tell me, and if we go beyond basketry, what else can we see? We have a good representation of ceramics because you can see, like, this is the contemporary ceramics from Estorj, from Santa Maria, from this young artisan. So she's doing like a very specific kind. She's playing with the shapes and with the doing faces and like more funny shapes. This is like a more traditional from Malentejo region. And so you can see the, the colors, patterns, the flowers. Then right next to the Alentejo region, you have a ceramicist from the north, also from Barcelos. And you see it's like more terracotta color. It's a very different, it's more raw. And you also have, he also works with the black ceramics. He also has some inspiration on the, on the Japanese haku style. And all of these are typical, but these are specific from different regions. Textiles is a whole world, it's a huge world in Portugal. It's well represented, we have a few rugs. We have the contemporary rugs made with the leftover cotton by this amazing brand from the north, which is Gur, which does, uh, usually her brand, they invite illustrators or designers to create drawings and they represent them in the, in the rugs. And in front of her, you have the traditional version of her rugs. So it's also made with leftover material cotton, but very traditional with the stripes, with very colorful or just one color. It's, so it's interesting to see, to have this dialogue of this is how traditionally it's made and this is how she's somehow playing with it and bringing this contemporary aspect to this tradition. Good, I would like to show also Mertola. So this is Officina de Stage in Mertola, which is the workshop, the weaving workshop in Mertola, which is in the southeast of Portugal. And for us, it's a very dear uh, workshop because Passo Futuro has been working with them for a while now. Because when we approached them in 2017, 18, they only had two um, weavers left. Actually, one of them was a master weaver and the other one was starting to learn. And they were a bit, let's say, sad because they didn't have somehow the hope that this craft would continue. And so since then we have been trying to do some projects with them. And we were lucky enough to be able to do two residencies with them. And so now we are working on new products, contemporary products with them. So the pieces, they went to travel for Prato Museum in Italy to the, to the Fabric Museum and they are being sold in some amazing stores and now they are here and so it's very exciting to see how how there was some refresh and now they have five uh, weavers learning how to weave so and they are doing all the process from farm to textile which is really amazing so they're also it's also part of all these reforestation projects and that was Astrid Susano speaking to Monocle's Gaia Lutz about Portugal's Arts and Craft Biennale, which is on until tomorrow. Well, let's turn our gaze now to Russia, where Vladimir Putin this week announced that 300,000 uh, troops would be called up. Those are people who are not currently in the forces, and it has sparked a rush to the borders. Men of fighting age are trying to leave the country. Uh, many more are being conscripted, going into battle. Lots of things all over social media showing drunk soldiers and uh, children 
crying for their fathers and so on. And of course, at the same time, we're seeing this referendum going on in Luhansk, in Kharkiv, in Zaporizhia and in Donetsk. Uh, and as we were saying in our headlines today, uh, there are reports that Russian soldiers are going door to door, forcing people to vote, that people are being threatened, they will lose their jobs unless they vote for annexation. Of course, Russia wants annexation because then it has an excuse to say that they're just defending Mother Russia. Uh, Latika, this is uh, a vote that is sure to be ignored by both Kyiv and Western nations. It is, however, going ahead. Yes, that's right. And in all the conditions that you outlined. And of course, we know the outcome of these referenda. Again, let's use inverted commas here um, because we know that they will come back as an overwhelming endorsement for recognition of, of Russian um, sovereignty. But we know that uh, those referenda were held at times at gunpoint. Um, some really compelling stories coming out via social media of people being forced to vote in their ballots at gunpoint. Yeah. Um, what happens here, though, is is an interesting conundrum. We've reached a point in the war where Putin clearly recognises that this is not going to plan. Uh, he did that uh, speech during the week where he obviously orders the mobilisation of 300,000 Russian men. Some suggestions that the real numbers could be as much as one million, um, which I think really does open up a different pressure point in Russia domestically that we've not seen in until this point during the war. And this fleeing, extraordinary fleeing of young men from Russia, I mean, you're not seeing men in Ukraine doing that, are you? Exactly. Men in Ukraine yeah. are staying from ballet dancers to pianists. Uh, any man, man that is able and age of has been bravely fighting for their country. In Russia, they're doing the exact opposite, which does go to show also, I think, the level of domestic belief about what this war is about and what it's for. Mm. Um, but there's a very, very interesting article in The Telegraph, which I'd recommend to you from Roland Oliphant, who has written about the very interesting schism that's happening in Russia, not so much from the liberals opposing Putin, but the ultra-nationalists, those who say Putin is so weak and that this week was in part a bit of a um, appeasing this side of his party because they're demanding a full kind of takeover of Ukraine, that, that if only Putin was stronger and ready to use a nuclear arsenal, then this could have been done and dusted by now. And so it goes through the case of some of the the ultra-nationalist bloggers and commentators. But the point being made is that they're not being silenced, one, and two, that this is illustrative of some of the forces around Putin who might be starting to whisper about what's going wrong. And this is very alarming because I think in the West there's a bit of a hope that if Putin's taken out or deposed or there's a coup, that it's by someone a bit more liberally minded who might have reconciliation with the West in mind. Well, not quite. There's very possibly this chance that someone even more hardline than Putin would take over should there be any power vacuum. So it's really sobering reading, uh, particularly in the context of what we saw. And don't forget there was that very weird delay between Putin's speech where it was announced the night before and didn't actually get broadcast uh, for 12 hours later. Lots of unexplained things that really do suggest trouble brewing. Absolutely huge trouble brewing, I think. Let's have a look uh, at what Andrew Muller has observed uh, over the past seven days. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
We learned this week that new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, after an eventful first fortnight in the job, does not quite yet bestride the global stage with the same commanding presence as one or two of her predecessors. We learned, or really chose to conclude this, from the narration of Truss's arrival at Monday's royal funeral by a couple of visiting Australian reporters. Who's this? No, hard to identify. Maybe uh, minor royals, members of the... I can't identify them we at this point. We can't spot everyone, no. unfortunately. They look like they could well be local dignitaries. It's hard to see. We're looking at the backs of their heads mostly. But I think we are now getting to the pointy end, as they say, of the... was. I'm just told that was Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, in the distance that we could see hopping out of that car. Well, thank you very much. Still, we learned that if there was one thing more embarrassing than not being recognised as a Prime Minister this week, it was being recognised as a Prime Minister this week, specifically being recognised as a Prime Minister bellowing debatably appropriate power ballads in a hotel bar. While we learned that while Justin Trudeau, for that was he, remains eternally that guy who wants to tell you about the band he played bass for in college who opened for Weezer that time, he has at least finally got the message about suiting up in traditional rig when abroad. We can at least be grateful that he didn't stride into Westminster Abbey dressed as a beefeater. But we learned that whatever Australian commentators and Canada's Prime Minister may have lacked in due reverence for the spectacle unfolding before them was more than adequately compensated for by House of Commons Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle, who put proceedings into their proper perspective. We should not allow anything to overshadow the most important event the world will ever see, and that's the funeral. We learned, therefore, that the development of the wheel, the corralling of fire, the birth of Christ, the fall of Rome, Columbus's voyage to the Americas, the entire Industrial Revolution, Apollo 11, and any number of inventions, discoveries, wars, revolutions, and sundry brouhaha's had all been kicked down a notch. But we learned, almost as Sir Lindsay spoke, that this week's melancholy events in London had already been superseded in one key respect. Ooh, I can't wait to see where this goes. Okay. Tell me Let's more. Let's see where this goes. For this was the week we learned that the worst thing which has ever happened had happened. And we have audio. And we're going to place that on the second fret. Okay, that's the second space. Hello, hello. What you can't hear anymore, as let's face it, you've already flung your phone or laptop out of the nearest available window, honestly not sure why we're still ploughing on, is people on an aeroplane all playing ukuleles with which they have actually been issued by the aircrew, like this is a thing in which any sane or decent citizen would wish to participate. We learned that this insufferably whimsical occurrence was the idea of an attention-seeking airline. Guitar Center lessons. We are so excited to be partnering with Southwest Airlines to give you a free ukulele gig bag and a beginner class right here on this plane for the very first time in history. 
Passengers aboard Southwest's service from Long Beach to Honolulu were all issued with ukuleles and given a massed lesson in how to strum the song Hello, Aloha, How Are You, a hit circa the 1920s by the singing sophomores, which was annoying enough when they did it. Hello, aloha, how are you? I'm happy to... The hammer, if you please. We learned basically that despite what may have been widely and indeed reasonably assumed, it turns out that it is actually possible to render the ukulele, instrument of choice of unbearable twee hipsters with either stupid waxed moustaches or infuriating gingham dresses, even more annoying, specifically by giving 200 of the goddamn things to people confined in an aeroplane, and then failing to fly it into a mountain. Sticking with the theme we have now solidly established of combining travelling at high altitude with utterly atrocious music, we learned of an exciting new development in the evolution of Space Force, which we also learned thereby is still a thing for some reason. Space Force, as listeners who have inexplicably chosen to endure the modern age sober may recall, is the relatively recently inaugurated newest branch of the US military and was an initiative of this guy. And then they have cans of soup. Soup. Space Force had previously unveiled much-mocked uniforms and widely derided insignia, and Space Force has now, we learned, blessed us with a Space Force song, which, we learned, absolutely sucks out loud. The hammer, again, if you would. Any time before the chorus, please. We learned when we looked into it further, because we're good like that, that this inelegant John Philip Sousa pastiche was the work of the chief musician of the US Coast Guard, i.e. a rival service branch, and that, therefore, the possibility that this is some sort of elaborate hazing ritual cannot be altogether discounted. Still, at least it isn't played on ukuleles. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks there to Andrew Muller. Latika, before we go, I really want to have a look at a story that's affected us both profoundly, uh, and that is the death at just age 70 of Dame Hilary Mantel. Of course, she's the author of the best-selling Wolf Hall trilogy uh, and so much else, hugely mourned within the world of literature and beyond. We have lost an absolute icon and gem in Hilary Mantel, and I'm glad you said just aged 70 because it's far too young for her to have left us. Uh, She was writing another book, and I don't know if we'll ever see the manuscript of that, but what a tragedy this is. A wonderful, wonderful obituary to her in The Telegraph today, um, full of absolute gems and a real deep dive into so much of her own personal history, including, of course, illnesses that plagued her all her life. She grew up in what was uh, she described as a very oppressive Catholic family. And this extraordinary story, which I hadn't realised until today, of her mother, 
moving in her lover, whose name Mantel she takes, um, and keeping the dad in the spare room until he left aged 11. She never saw him again. And then when she won the Booker Prize, uh, he is observed to have said to somebody, I think that's my daughter. Wow. And she herself had an unusual marital history because she divorced her husband and a year later remarried him. Uh, Yes. I mean, she is somebody who was a a total original, which is the theme of all the obituaries today in in all the papers. But this one in The Telegraph is just fantastic because it dives into how uh, individual and unique not only she was, but she was courageously willing to be in a society where you can so easily be criticised or leapt on for making comments. And uh, there's one particular anecdote I really love where she talks about uh, how royal women um, lose their individuality in their own character once they marry into the royal family. And that's an essay she wrote on Princess Diana. And she likens that, of course, to Catherine, the Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William's wife as well, uh, saying that she'd become a a series of joints upon which rags were hung. Now, um, at the time, David Cameron and lots of other political leaders came out and, and savaged her for making those comments. And she comes back with this amazing retort of, well, I was so uh, ashamed of that they let themselves comment on something they were so unaware and ill-informed about, (laughs) (laughs) which is just absolutely uh, a testament to her character. But she is an absolute uh, trailblazer. She broke records by winning the Man Booker Prize um, uh, for a sequel as well and and twice. And uh, also... um, there was one other thing that I did want to point out for her, but I've had a complete brain fade. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that, I mean, just the tributes pouring in for oh, her yes. are extraordinary from, from all over the world. But but also from people who really knew her, all of them saying, what a nice, what a pleasant person she was, what great company, how witty she was, how emails from her were always kind of uh, had, had so much depth to them, so much life to them. And I mean, I think that's the wonderful thing is that we have her work. She has left us this incredible body of work. Absolutely. And this is actually what I I just remembered I was going to say. There's this wonderful quote from her saying that she would have been a historian not, but not for the pain in which she grew up suffering endometriosis um, and she also had later thyroid problems. So she had ill health all her life and says that that probably made her a writer because if she hadn't, she would have chosen health and gone out and lived a, a quite happy life. As it turns out, she lived a life seemingly in a lot of isolation, an enormous amount of time spent on her thorough research, which of course informs her beautiful writing. But um, the wonderful thing about Wolf Hall was that it made everyone go and discover her earlier works. Yeah, and I, I can't find the exact quote, but she, she I did read something she said yesterday about how, yes, she worked hard and she has had incredible success, and but she acknowledges the fact that there are other people out there who've worked equally as hard and she will never stop thanking people for her great, great good fortune uh, and our good fortune too for, for, for having access to those works. Rest in peace, Dame Hilary. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to my guest in the studio, Latika Burke, and our studio engineer, Adam Heaton. And Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next weekend. And I'll be here uh, with the programme tomorrow, Monocle on Sunday, my guest there. Uh, Tyler Brule will be with us, uh, Simon Brook, and, of course, Charles Hecker. Uh, That's at 9am London time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.